Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 10. We'll be in Acts chapter 10 this week and next week. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Join with me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may Your Word before us be our rule. May Your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are at week 26 in our series, looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission and exposition of the book of Acts. Again, why are we in Acts? Uh, We, here at Grace and Peace, are part of the continuing expansion the ongoing growth of the church. We are reminded by taking some time in Acts that Christianity is grounded in the actions of God in history. Yes, His Word speaks, and we see creation brought into being by His Word. It's an action. His Word brings about creation and new creation. And and we see that that Acts is, is talking about Real events in real history, in time and space, Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his promised return, the ongoing ministry of Jesus now by his Holy Spirit. Acts. God acts in history. What God has done and what God still does. We look back at what God has done in Jesus Christ. We look ahead to what he will do in Christ now by his Spirit. I've been saying this, and it's worth repeating, that Acts provides both an anchor for us and an engine for us as it orients us to the Word of God and to the work of God, His power, then and now. Acts is a record not only of the expansion of the church, but also, it's interestingly, the record of the gospel in exposing hearts. And we will see that as we continue to work our way through Acts Last week uh, in chapter 9, the last few verses of chapter 9, we we understood it as a transition between the the conversion of Saul, a Jew, and this upcoming conversion of Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion. Peter, and what is happening here, we, we see... We see this is going to be a big deal. A major breakthrough is about to happen. Uh, We saw last week that that two miracles are signs pointing to the truth and pictures of the truth of God's saving work through Jesus. That God rescues the helpless. He rescues the hopeless. He rescues the homeless. Now to get us into chapter 10, I want to ask a question. Um, Is changing your mind a virtue or a vice? Is changing your mind something good or something bad? Now, in politics, when politicians change their mind, change their position on an issue, it's often referred to as a flip-flop, right? Or somebody's waffling. Uh, But there's a flip-flop. Now, here's my question. Are all flip-flops bad? You know, we rail against a politician for changing his position, changing her position. Are all flip-flops bad? 
You know, to change your mind based on new information, new, accurate, true information is a good thing. Scientists do it all the time. Good scientists, scientists that are concerned about accuracy and truth, they come, they see new information, new data, they change their mind. Well, how about for the Christian? Is it good for us to change our mind? Remember in Romans chapter 12, after Paul has spent 11 chapters uh, speaking about the mercy of God in Christ, he says in view of uh, God's mercy, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? The renewal of your mind, by your mind changing. And I think this is what we will see at the center of our passage, a change of mind, a flip-flop, as it were. This is part one of a tale of two conversions. It's, it's a dramatic development in the spread of Christianity. It's a watershed moment. It's, 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 there's, it's a Pentecost. It's a conversion of Saul, this upcoming conversion of Cornelius. It's the longest narrative in Acts. It's all of chapter 10. It goes the first 18 verses of chapter 11. You will get, I hope not tired by the repetition, but you'll be aware of the repetition as it seeks to draw our attention that this is a big deal. In many ways, it's the book's turning point. It's about how God took the initiative to bring Jew and Gentile together and thus inaugurate the Jerusalem church's mission to the Gentiles. Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All nations, Jesus speaks about. All nations. In Acts chapter 1, to the end of the earth, this witness was to go out to. The end of the earth, all nations. But before we get to Cornelius' conversion, we first need to consider the conversion of Peter. Uh, Next week, our focus will be on Cornelius and his conversion, but today... It's going to be on Peter. Uh, Join with me as I read chapter 10, verses 1 through 33, and I'm going to read all of it. Um, I keep hearing of these stories of men and women, boys and girls, being converted by just listening to the Word of God read. Um, This is food for our souls. And so join with me as I read this narrative account of Peter and Cornelius. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, 
being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Now what we have before us in our text is what I'm calling the conversion of Peter. That is the ongoing transformation in Peter's life as the gospel takes root and as the gospel bears fruit. Do you think that a Christian needs to, conver- needs to be converted? Well, I'm not talking about initial conversion from death to life, from, from unbelief to belief. I'm talking about this ongoing conversion. Um, and so what does conversion in a Christian's life look like? In other words, what are the evidences of conversion? And what I believe we'll see is that there are two basic categories of evidence. The first having to do with our relationship with God and the second having to do with our relationship with others. First, 
our relationship to God. What's evidence of conversion? Uh, It's continuing obedience to God. Continuing obedience to God. Uh, If you look at this this, uh, long passage, uh, there's the vision of Cornelius. Uh, verses 1 through 8. It's a description of a man who's an outsider, his vision and his obedience to the vision. And you see, it's a vision of Peter from verses 9 through 16. Uh, Here's a man who's an insider. And it's interestingly, it's a culinary vision. Uh, You have two visions, uh, um, uh, Cornelius and Peter, and yet You have one purpose, and that is to bring these two men together. And from verses 17 through 33, we see that Peter and Cornelius meet. Jew and Gentile meet. There's the arrival of envoys. There's travel to uh, an arrival in Caesarea. Let's look for a moment at this vision of Peter. He's praying at noon. One of those appointed times for, for Jews to, to pray. And even the new Christian community kept up those, those times. And, and, and there's the, this vision of a sheet with four corners coming down this worldwide dimension. The four corners, as it were, of the earth. And all kinds of animals and reptiles and, and birds. A mixture of clean and unclean animals. Because if you go back to Leviticus chapter 11, you get this huge list and description of of, of the purity laws regarding clean and unclean animals, how to distinguish them and stay separate from them. And yet, Peter receives a shocking command. Look at verse 13. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. I bet he could understand the kill part, but the eat? It's shocking. It, it seems initially to contradict the previous instruction that, that Peter had gotten as a faithful Jew. And what is the initial response that Peter has? But Peter said, by no means, Lord. (laughs) Emphatic rejection. There's There's an emotional that supersedes the logical here because he believes that this is the Lord speaking. And indeed it is through this angel, through this vision. Um, he, He contradicts, he rejects no Lord. Now Peter's got some track record with this right you know Jesus says that I'm gonna um, I'm gonna be uh, betrayed I'm gonna be I'm gonna suffer I'm gonna die and what does Peter say no Lord no Lord Uh, what happens when uh, Peter and the other disciples and Jesus is washing your feet what does he tell the Lord no Lord you're not gonna do that Uh, a I, he might be dead now. Uh, an English uh, theologian pastor came over to speak at Westminster Seminary when I was there and had, a, had a, uh, a sermon title, and it was two words that you should never put together. It's a pretty interesting title, two words. And those words were, no Lord. And yet, Peter, the believer Peter, still got work in his life. God has work to accomplish. Um, but, you know, don't be... Don't be too hard on Peter. I mean, he's operating now against a whole lifetime of training and habit. Think about the conversion of Saul that we talked about a few weeks ago. Saul going to Damascus to do the Lord's will. He meets Jesus. His life changes. Look at verse 15. There's a statement. 
What God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common. Peter doesn't know this yet, but what's going to happen, he's going to see that this change is coming through Jesus. Jesus' teachings and actions paved the way, and his cross accomplished it. That's what we saw in in Ephesians 2, that the dividing wall of hostility was broken between Jew and Gentile, that Jesus himself is our peace. There was a great gulf between Jew and Gentile. There was an entrenched prejudice on both sides. One commentator says this, Israel had twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. Did you hear that? Israel has twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. Became filled with racial pride and hatred. Despised Gentiles as dogs and developed traditions that kept them apart. So what's Peter's response to this? He is perplexed he is inwardly perplexed he's confused but we'll see that God will of course clear up the confusion Um, look at the obedience of Peter and and, and consider the change in Peter well what should Peter do he's faced with this he's heard God say by uh, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's response is, no way, I'm not going to do that. And then God says, what he has made clean, do not call common. Well, Peter's at that moment of decision. Should he stick to his guns or not? Should, he say, should Peter stay strong? Should Peter be the model of certainty and inflexibility? Should Peter flip-flop? Well, the narrative continues because we see that Peter can and Peter does obey. We see it first in the command. Look at verse 20. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. And the verse that follows, and Peter went down to the men and said, isn't that great? You have the command of God and the obedience of man, one verse after the other. Think about Jonah being called by God. But yet, Jonah did not obey, did he? He ran away. He foolishly ran away from God. And what was the context? God wanted, what? Jonah to give a message to the people. And what is the context here? God wants Peter to give a message to the people. It's interesting, um, Back in uh, verse, um, where is it? Verse, yeah, 14. Do not, uh, verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. He's talking about animals, right? Because that's the vision Peter has. But later we will see uh, that in verse 28, Peter says this, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, isn't that interesting? Peter's given this vision of animals, but Peter rightly recognized God is not talking about animals. He's talking about people. And the last time I checked people, excuse me, children, people are much more valuable than animals. People. 
It's from, as it were, kind of a narrow view to a, to a more broad view. All scripture we read in 2 Timothy is breathed out by God and profitable or useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Here is the very word of God coming to Peter who then will be used by God to, to write scripture that, that, that Peter is being taught, Peter is being reproved, Peter is being corrected, Peter is being trained in righteousness through the word, through his word. My friends, we all, myself and all of us, need to be realigned to the word. Where does God right now need to realign you? Where does God need to move you out of your comfort zone and to the risk-taking, God-obeying life? Especially in the, uh, in the area of, of, of sharing a message with people. What, what belief do, do we have that really, when it comes down to it, has no basis in the scriptures? And we all have that. Not scripture here and there, but the overall flow, the, the continuity of scripture, the, 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 the message of scripture. What, where do our beliefs not line up? Well, our obedience to God does not exist in a vacuum or in isolation. You see, the status of our relationship to God, our obedience to God, affects our relationship to others. And you can go as far as to say that the status of our relationship with God is, is deter, excuse me, is, is de, can be determined by looking at our relationship to others. First John, the Apostle John nails it, doesn't it? How can you say you love God who you haven't seen when you don't love your brother who you can see? Our relationship with God is in many ways seen in our relationship with others. And our, in our text this morning, we see that an ongoing submission to God. You see, that's what Peter's doing. He's submitting himself to God. It displays itself through a growing and increasing humility before others. And so... The second area of evidence is in our relationship to others, uh, increasing humility before others. Before I go on, the only way we can be humble before others is to, first of all, be humble before God. It sort of goes without saying. But here, we're going to see some evidences of Peter's humility before others. Uh, look in verse 23. Peter gives hospitality. Evidence number one of humility is hospitality. Peter is gracious. He invites them in. He gives hospitality. But notice in verse 27, Peter receives hospitality. He went in and found many persons gathered. You know, hospitality sometimes always seems like, well, we have to be hospitable. Yes. But it's also the receiving of hospitality as well. So evidence of humility, hospitality. Another evidence that we see in Peter of his humility is recognition of who you are. We see that primarily in verses 25 and 26. What does Peter say? I mean, Cornelius, the centurion, the Roman in charge of a hundred men, the Roman who had himself servants, who's a God-fearer, who's generous, who's well-respected. What does what does Cornelius do when he sees Peter? He falls down and he worships him. And what is Peter's response? Stand up. I too am a man. Peter wants to stop right then and there 
any kind of worship of anyone other than the one true and living God. He's also acknowledging in that the removal of the barrier that comes between men. Because you know, when it comes to tyrants and their subjects, here's the tyrant lording it over the subject. And that subject is bowed down and at the feet. But no, stand up. You're on equal ground with me, brother. As he will one day, I'm sure, be able to call him. John Stott says, Peter had just now repudiated both extreme and opposite attitudes which human beings have adopted toward one another. Peter refused both to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. Is that amazing? Humility. I am not a god. I'm a fellow human being like you. And my friend, you're not a dog who's going to be at my feet. No, you're up with me. With a simple act and with firm words, Peter removes from Cornelius' mind and heart the difference between Jew and Gentile. But there's a third evidence of humility. It's hospitality. It's recognition of who you are. And a third uh, evidence is acknowledgement that God is in the business of changing you. Look at verse 28 again. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Isn't that amazing? Peter went from no Lord to God has shown me this and I believe it. The explanation is simple. God has said that he should. Peter as it were, stands corrected. Um, when I was in the Navy, you learned, you learned to speak Navy. And one of the expressions that I learned, unfortunately, a lot in my early days was this, I stand corrected. You make a statement, you do something, and the boss calls you on it, and you're trying to get out of it, and you realize you can't, and then you basically say, I stand corrected. My friends, when was the last time you stood corrected by God? You see, Peter changed in not only how he viewed people, his belief not only changed, he changed in how he treated people, his behavior. You see, proud Peter is becoming humble Peter. And as an apostle, as a founder of the church, Peter had to learn that God is a God of grace who will bless all kinds of people. God uses this simple vision to teach Peter humility, and humility will will, uh, allow Peter to declare God's mercy in the gospel in a manner and with a conviction that he would need as the gospel left the confines of Judaism and went out to the pagan Gentile Roman world. The stage is set. Look at verse 33. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I mean, is that a preacher's dream or what? To have somebody in the congregation said, we're all here. We're here to hear what 
God says. What a dream. And we'll see that next week. Many are now gathered in the presence of God in eager expectation. They all know that God is responsible for their being together. And God is a witness. Everyone is ready to listen. And Peter is ready to speak. Well, this long narrative shows us, I believe, at least a couple of things about the Christian life. First, it's a life of initial and ongoing conversion. Our lives have to be reoriented, realigned, and re-educated. I mean, not go to the re-education camps of of the gulag or Mao's China, but go to the re-education camps where God's word is at the center. And indeed, how does God speak today in visions to so-called apostles? No, he speaks to us through his word, by his spirit. And what do we do when we we realize that our belief and our practice does not line up with the, the Bible? Well, back to the Navy. You had to learn a lot of rules of the road, of what ship has the right of way. And when when everything else failed, when you got confused, you lost the bubble, you were, things were going sideways and south, you just had to remember the one rule. The bigger ship has the right of way. The bigger ship. You see, somebody has to change. It's not the bigger ship. One of us has to change. It's not going to be the bigger ship. You see, believers, we must learn to listen to God's word and faithfully act on it, even when the Bible stretches and breaks an old view that we've held tightly to. Your life, my friends, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, should be full of flip-flops as you grow and mature. And some of the flip-flops are not from the broad to the narrow. Some of the flip-flops are from the narrow to the broad. I'm always reminded that that whenever we baptize a covenant child, whenever the the church administers the the covenant baptism, you know, it's, it's to sons and daughters. The covenant of grace broadens. It's no longer just Jew. It's it's all people. The religious Jew, Peter becomes broader, as it were, and the irreligious, pagan, Gentile, good guy like Cornelius, he's going to have to become narrower as he follows the Lord. And so it's a life of initial and ongoing conversion. And finally, the Christian life is a life of stability in the midst of instability. Or if you'd like it, it's the, midst, it's the life of instability in the midst of stability. Go either with either one. You see, the stability of God enables you to weather the instability of good change in your life. You see, change is scary, isn't it? But God is stable in the midst of our instability because we are anchored by who God is and what God does. If you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, I just want to read a few verses. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, 
in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. My friends, we are anchored by who God is and what God does. Who is God? How does He want to be described? He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, my friends, that's who God is. And what does God do? God makes promises. He keeps promises. He is faithful. For all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. My friends, in the minor prophet book of Malachi, we hear this statement. For I, the Lord, do not change. But my friends, Scripture is very clear that those who follow Jesus, those who know Jesus, they do. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you have included this long narrative of the events leading up to and the event of the conversion of Cornelius as the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Father, you have had to have had a good reason for this to be here. I pray that you would give us wisdom to understand and wisdom to apply this text. Father, help us to rely on the fact that you are unchangeable. And that should give us safety and security and confidence that we, who are united by faith to Christ, can change can grow, can put off and put on, can say no, can say yes. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to make the lives of those here at Grace and Peace one of constant change, of becoming more and more like Jesus, more easy, more quickly to ask for forgiveness, more quick to forgive, more quick to put off the old and to put on the new. Father, we thank you that we can keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Enable us today, Father, to see Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen.